This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Wealthbar. Whether you've got $1,000 or a million, Wealthbar makes accessing professionally managed investments and financial advice ridiculously easy. Start investing with an advisor at your fingertips through Wealthbar's top-rated app. Sign up online in minutes at wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand, and you'll get a $100 fee credit. From CanadaLand, this is Oppo. I'm Sandy Garosino in Vancouver. I'm Jen Gerson. As the pandemic and worldwide protests continue to dominate headlines, politics continues to churn on in the background, unbeknownst to the rest of us. Coverage of the daily machinations of political parties is pushed further out of the spotlight. What exactly do you mean, Jen? And I'm just like, what spotlight? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would just note that I have completely forgot that a conservative leadership race is happening. I don't know about you. What race is that? Uh, that's for the the conser conservative. Oh God, party. we're being so mean. We are being we are being too mean. Apparently, the previous leader of the Conservative Party, whose name I forgot, is no longer a thing, and they have to create uh, new leaders based on two people uh, vaguely familiar. Anyway, we'll we'll get all into it. Did you know, for example, that the Conservative Party's debates are happening this week? Well, I did, because you told me. Oh, okay. Well, there we go. So that's happening. So in order to frame that uh, that debate to come, which I'm sure is going to be absolutely scintillating and entirely on point with the moment, we are going to actually talk about the Conservative leadership race. We've decided to bring in an expert, and today that expert is James Moore. He is a former member of Parliament for the now-abolished riding of Port Moody, Westwood, and Port Coquitlam. Little known fact... That's where I went to high school. He was also a former minister of industry in the cabinet of Stephen Harper. Moore decided to uh, not run in the 2015 federal election and uh, went on to do a whole bunch of other interesting things, including becoming a chancellor at the University of Northern British Columbia, an on-air pundit, and, uh, you know, he serves as an advisor to firms like Denton's and Edelman. So we'll see what he has to say. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Wealthbar. Is your bank putting you on hold when it comes to your investment questions? They take your money, but not your phone calls. 
They make you book a meeting just to book a meeting. There's a better way. WealthBar makes accessing professionally managed investments and financial advice ridiculously easy. When you invest with WealthBar, they'll pair you with a professionally managed portfolio that's tailored to your goals. Their convenient app makes it easy to set up automatic deposits, open new accounts, and check in on your progress at any time. And when you have questions, their financial advisors are available directly through the app. No appointment necessary. Start investing with an advisor at your fingertips through WealthBar's top-rated app. Sign up online in minutes at wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand, and you'll get a $100 fee credit. Well, before we get to the CPC leadership race, it's time for us to quickly discuss a couple of stories from the last week that caught our eye. Jen, what have you got for us today? Yeah, this one's caught my eye. The uh, foreign affairs minister has two mortgages with the state-run Bank of China. Now, I realize that there's been a lot of ugh about this particular story, because when you go on, you open it, you read it, you're like, oh, okay, Uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne took out these two mortgages with the Bank of China when he was an expat. And, you know, he took these these mortgages out before he went into politics. So this is a non-story. It was disclosed, blah, 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 blah. And I kind of understand that. But there are two things here that kind of raise my eyebrow. One is his explanation. Um, when asked to explain how and why he got these mortgages, he said, well, I was living as an expat in London at the time, and like the Bank of China was really the only bank where I could possibly have gotten these mortgages because of various restrictions. That don't smell quite right to me. And I'll tell you why. Because, you know, firstly, London is a financial capital of the world and yep. like thousands of expats buy property there. Like literally their entire real estate market um, is a playground for Russian oligarchs and, and Middle Eastern oil money. So like the idea that like an expat couldn't easily obtain a mortgage from a number of banks in London, that doesn't quite add up to me. I suspect there's probably more to the story than that, but that's fine. The second thing that really sort of makes the story seem odd to me is the idea that he wouldn't have just refinanced those loans when he came back into politics. Like, it's such an obvious vulnerability. CSIS, someone in, in government should have flagged it as a potential problem, and he should have just gone like, oh, okay, and then refinanced the mortgage with, again, any number of banks, either internationally or in Canada, and that should not have been difficult to do at all. The fact that nobody spotted this as a real vulnerability, I, I find that very, very puzzling. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised that it didn't get spotted and flagged. I think that's the bigger issue more than than that he has these mortgages although it all kind of flows into one doesn't that it this is it's just so clear especially given the sensitivity of the particular relationships that we have To, to me it just it just sort of seems like given the sensitivities about what's going on in china when he took the role in foreign affairs somebody really should have just been like dude maybe you should go spend the 40 minutes you know with a bank and just refinance that mortgage. Somebody with who is as wealthy as he is should have been able to get access to that capital very, very easily. And mm-hmm. the vulnerability this creates for him and the government is so glaringly obvious, even if he's completely and totally innocent, which we have no reason to believe he is anything but. Mm-hmm. Well, let's hope that detail gets cleaned up and memo goes out to everybody else in government. Yeah. Check it. Maybe go with HSBC. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like I don't know. Like, uh, just a, just a thought. Just a thought. So the issue that has caught my eye and just transfixes me, of course, is the issue around uh, defunding the police, but more specifically, uh, police and Indigenous people. Chantelle Moore and Rodney Levy were both Indigenous Canadians shot and killed in RCMP incidents in New Brunswick over just a 10-day period. 
and all of this having come originally from the criminal justice system many, many years ago, you know, this whole issue of um, really white control of all the levers of power within the criminal justice system, policing and the criminal justice system, just this is such an issue for me. And I was checking the stats. The RCMP across Canada are still less than 20% visible minorities and policing across all populations in Canada, including the OPP, um, Metro Police in Toronto, the Vancouver Police Department. Policing is a business or is a job for white people, largely young white males. And this is going to haunt us. And I look specifically at our composition. This is really concerning to me. We are going to have increasing issues unless we get right to the heart of the composition of the police themselves. And when we fix that, we will be on our way. I mean, I think that there is no dispute that like a lot of institutions in Canada, the RCMP struggles to get representative staff members who are non-white. And I, that is a problem. It's not just a problem with the RCMP. It's obviously a problem in media. It's obviously a problem in government. It's, it, it's a problem right across the board. I'm a little bit uh, hesitant to assume that simply putting more people who aren't white into those roles is going to fix the problem. I think that uh, if we have problems with the RCMP, for example, not knowing how to de-escalate situations or not knowing how to handle mental health calls or not knowing how to handle any of these other various issues that are leading to these violent incidents, and we're just training people of color in exactly the same way, like we're just replicating the problem, except we're going to replicate the problem with a more diverse force. And so I think that the problems and the solutions probably have to be twofold, right? Having worked in the criminal justice system, trust and belief in that the system is there to work for you, that it represents you. There's so much more to that. But when policing becomes an instrument of white power, when it is essentially a white force being used to suppress people of color. And it just, it's just so obvious. It couldn't be more obvious when you, when you look at the composition itself. And why are they having trouble recruiting? Because of who they are. And so I really do think that the whole issue around defunding police is about more than just, we all know that so much of policing is about addiction, mental health, and dealing with poor populations and all of these things. And man, oh man, I just look at composition. I, I've seen it. I've seen it in the courts. I've seen it in on the street. And I think it's a huge part of it. I think that's a pretty intense allegation and probably one that's worth unpacking, but with someone from the RCMP. That's what I would say. So maybe we should. Maybe we should. James Moore, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. Can you start out by telling us a little bit about who you are and what we should call you? <laughs> sure. Well, I'm a 44-year-old male from British Columbia. Um, but no, I uh, had a, an amazing time in experience in federal politics. I was elected at the age of 24. I retired at the age of 39. I was elected in 2000, didn't run in 2015, five terms, 15 years. 
three in government, eight years in cabinet, and was a brilliant experience. And now I work in the private sector, uh, principally at Denton's law firm. I also work at Edelman, which is a global uh, public relations firm. And I sit on a few corporate boards, um, vice chair of the Canadian Cancer Society, which is my uh, my charitable passion because I lost my mom to cancer when I was 16. And uh, I'm just a happy dad living in British Columbia. So in short, you are the conservative man. You are the conservative establishment. <laughs> Why wouldn't, I don't know about Got that. <laughs> I don't know if they come with, with much more conservative uh, credentials than that. That's pretty good. Yeah. So my, my first question really for you is, uh, why in the hell were you the only conservative not to run for leadership? <laughs> well, I think there are, like in the sweep of the recent last two races, um, look, I, I think there are a lot of people who didn't run, um, who, who might have run and made a good go of it. For me, I just really was, t- it was time for me to get out of politics and get into the private sector. I joke with some friends of mine, and you can fill in the blanks of who I'm thinking of, but, you know, but there are a lot of conservatives who talk a lot about the glories and the importance and the values of the private sector, but I don't see some of them working in the private sector very much in their lives. So I, I very much do enjoy what I'm doing in the private sector. And, and you know, like I had a great run of it. I have totally lost the thread on the conservative leadership race. I'm reasonably sure I've almost forgotten who's running. So could you just do me and our listeners a favor and just lay out the race as it stands today to the best of your ability and as quickly and as uh, wittily as you possibly can? (laughs) Sure. Well, there are four candidates for the leadership. Leslyn Lewis, who's uh, not, not been elected before. She's from Toronto. She has a very impressive background. She's essentially uh, running as a, as a social conservative, but a new voice within the party. Um, she has a PhD. She's run for office once before, was unsuccessful. And she's done very well with a experienced, small, robust campaign team running largely on a socially conservative platform, but to be a new voice from the outside in the party. Derek Sloan is a second candidate. He's a first-term member of parliament from Ontario. I've, n- I've not met either of these two, don't know them very well. He has made a number of controversial comments, um, clearly casting himself as the principal social conservative in the race. And the two principal candidates who will likely, one of the two will likely be the a victor is Aaron O'Toole and Peter McKay. Peter McKay, of course, former cabinet minister, multi-portfolios, was first elected in 1997 as a progressive conservative, helped merge the party with Stephen Harper, served in a number of cabinet portfolios. Uh, Aaron O'Toole was a member of parliament, actually took over Bev Oda's seat when Bev Oda stepped down, won in a by-election, was re-elected, served briefly in cabinet, uh, has military experience, and both he and Peter McKay are lawyers. And that's essentially the field. And as the race stands right now, as I understand it, it's, you know, what it is a two horse race between Aaron and Peter, both of whom are, I think, slight degrees of difference between the two. There's, I think, a degree of emphasis. There's a difference in presentation, a degree of difference in style. And, and, um, but overall, the two of them, I think, cast themselves appropriately as leaders who, straddle the broad spectrum of the conservative movement and have both put forward platforms that I think have broad appeal to broad swaths of the conservative movement. So I'm just going to make a quick um, strategic observation. It seems to me like Leslie Lewis has positioned herself in the same way that Tanya Granick allen did uh, in the Ontario PC leadership race between Christine Elliott and Doug Ford, where you kind of have a more socially conservative woman essentially playing kingmaker with uh, the top two. I think that that's actually the role she's she's serving here. 
tactically that may be how it comes out but i but i think to be fair to her if you look at the platform that she's put forward um she's talked about a lot more than that i mean of course the f- frankly the broad mainstream media does focus on those things because look it's it's it actually is unique for someone to step forward and say i'm not afraid to talk about these issues i'm not afraid to talk about third trimester abortions i'm not afraid to talk about sex selection abortions and and here's where i stand and my members of parliament will have a free vote on that and like you know andrew Shear, you know tied himself in knots to try to dissociate himself from a position that he's held for a long time and all and she comes forward and very stridently and, and confidently and dispassionately just sort of says yeah that's where i come from but if you look at everything but in the same way says, that's in this in exactly the same way tanya granick allen did right i mean she was a, a one issue uh candidate who was able to serve as a, as a really powerful distraction to the race but also she she made herself powerful because she managed to get that significant minority block of voters on her side and then with that you know we saw that that most of those voters then went to doug ford Leslie Lewis's impact on the race may be the same as Tanya Granick Allen's, but to be fair, I think Tanya Granick Allen ran for the leadership of the party on the heels of Kathleen Wynne's sex education agenda, which stirred up a lot of you know fear and frankly just wrote ugly homophobia that was tapped into and accelerated in a very aggressive and ugly way. And um, she took advantage of that, but that that hasn't happened here because there hasn't. Oh been no, a, I'm not. And, big, and I'm, yeah. I'm drawing a tactical analogy, not like a personality sure. or a policy based analogy here. I don't think that Leslie Lewis is is, is tapping into mm-hmm. that in the same way. Yeah, we'll see. But I think one one overarching assessment, though, that's very difficult in all this is that you know the, the this leadership race, the the membership sign up period has been happening almost exactly one year. Uh, divorced from last year's massive membership signups that happened all across the country as people were running for nominations for the 2019 election, right? So you have mm-hmm. 338 ridings, you have people flooding into the, the party in order to support their local friends to run and become a member of parliament. Those memberships are now, you're typically one-year memberships are now lapsing and people are walking away from the party as new people are signing in. And maybe some of those one-term members, maybe they renewed just because they want to stick around and vote in the leadership. So to assess who's ahead and who's not, and even Leslie Lewis's impact, is actually really challenging. So everybody's trying to handicap the race based on Peter McKay's social media performance or the appeal of Aaron O'Toole's platform. It, but it, like we all know, it's it's who shows up and who has the the membership sales. And on that score, it's really hard to know because of this tied in and tied out of memberships from 2019. And then the tied in this time, we don't know who's who. James, one of the things that has has been striking me as I've been doing an overview of what are the issues now gripping um, Canadian or Canadian attention, and I I look at the pandemic, the Black Lives Matter and policing, issues over policing, the looming economic crisis that I think we're not yet really absorbing, uh, climate change, pipelines and then indigenous issues, almost every one of these um, issues has emerged since there almost since the last election. How do you see the candidates and perhaps especially focusing on the leading candidates? How do you see them adjusting to this changed political environment? Well, you're right. And I think party members, not only conservative party members in this circumstance, but party members at all times, because it's a small percentage of Canadians who are ever active members of a political party. But what, what you're actually choosing, what you're voting on is, frankly, the character and substance and capacity of a leader. When Justin Trudeau ran for Liberal Party leader, he was talking about a whole set of issues that had no salience to what he actually had to deal with as prime minister. In the 2015 campaign, it was time for change from Stephen Harper. 
Justin Trudeau gets elected, and then Donald Trump gets elected. And now we're talking about NAFTA. Now we're talking, and that was the dominant issue for the first term of his time as prime minister. Then he gets reelected of, you know, we're going to keep it going and to keep the economy moving. We put NAFTA to bed, everything. And then COVID happens. And then now these, all the, these string of other issues have come forward. Same thing was true with Jean Chrétien in the year 2000. He ran for election. Then 9-11 happened. Stephen Harper gets elected in 2006, 2008. The economic collapse happens. So if it's Peter McKay or Aaron O'Toole who becomes the prime minister, they can put forward platforms now and they might have all kinds of great ideas in them. And, you know, as a conservative, you hope that they achieve these things. However, at core, what you're actually choosing is the temperament, the style, the capacity, and the character of an individual on whose shoulders is going to be enormous weight when it comes to all kinds of challenges that we don't yet know are going to face us. That kind of reminds me of a years old um, conversation that the late, great Christopher Hitchens had in an interview where he made a very similar argument that at the end of the day, you only really ever have is is the character and the temperament of, of the political leadership you're working with. And really, that's the most important thing. It, it's probably one of the more important ways to judge a, a future leader. And of course, he was saying this in support of John Edwards. <laughs> it was actually one of the most beautiful little like summations of of uh of situations because i mean his argument was absolutely flawless but but in this flawless argument was the seeds of its own demise the judgment of the observer <laughs> how in the world are are we supposed to judge the temperament and the sort of ethical standards of any of these people in a modern campaign environment where everything is utterly scripted i mean well, yeah, but in that in that sense, that's kind of the mystery of politics, right? Because you don't really know. Um, you know, every year in in the National Football League, they have a draft, and they'll they'll have a guy who is the running back from Oklahoma, and he's five eleven, two oh five, five percent body fat, runs a four four forty, brilliant athlete. And they draft him in the first round and he gets into his first four games and he can't hold on to the ball. He just fumbles in prime time, just can't make it happen. You don't know is the truth. You know, sometimes you do know you have a glimpse into the reality of people's character and capacity based on their experience. And that's kind of why endorsements matter, right? In the UK system, endorsements matter a lot more than they do in Canada. And in Canada, we just kind of shrug. But it matters a lot when somebody who's been around public life for a long time has built up friendships and abilities. And then people say, with their own reputation on the line, that person is the right person to be prime minister. I've worked closely with him or her. They're the right person. And and frankly, you see testimony of that in recent politics on the conservative side, right? Very few people supported Maxime Bernier because we kind of knew. Very few people in the Republican Party supported Donald Trump because they know. And, you know, Trump became what he has become. Maxime Bernier crashed and burned. But I, I think those signs of endorsement of politicians it's not like well Aaron O'Toole you're going to you're going to keep the GST at 5% but Peter McKay is going to lower the GST by a point and I can you know frankly taxes go up taxes go down platforms for the most part between these two can largely be interchangeable they're not substantively and massively different it's not like you're choosing between frankly Brad Trost and Kelly Leach or Andrew Shear This Mother's Day treat mom to healthy glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. 
but it's not these massive gulfs of policy. What ultimately you're trying to decide or conservatives are trying to decide are one of two things, electability, number one, and then number two, that question of if this person becomes prime minister and there's another pandemic or there's another economic collapse of a crisis like we're seeing right now, which of these two people could withstand the burden and move this country forward effectively? And that's a very hard thing to score, but that requires more conversation with people who know these people well. And then there's the issue of getting elected. You know, right now, the Conservative Party really can't capture much more than it already has in the prairie regions. It could improve its its positioning in British Columbia and maybe Atlantic Canada, but the core of electability for the Conservative Party is clearly Ontario, the 905, and Quebec. And how do you see either of these candidates being able to break in there. I'm, I'm just, I was just looking last yeah. night at some of the numbers out of the 2019 election and the 905 went by a margin of 17% on average to the liberals. How are either um, Aaron O'Toole or Peter McKay, assuming it's one of them, going to crack the code on the 905 and on Quebec? Well, look, I, I'm uh, old enough to remember, you know, as I supported Stephen Harper for leader of the Canadian Alliance and then for the leader of the merged Conservative Party. And I remember having this exact conversation and people saying, Stephen Harper, the guy who was the author of the Western Manifesto of the West, and the, the Reform Party and the West wants in, how in the world is this guy who actually led a regional party and then out of politics when he might have been moderating himself to come back and run for a leader? How is this guy ever going to actually be, have a pan-Canadian view when he authored the, the Western Manifesto? Look, you know, a lot changes between now and election time. And I would very much believe that that either Aaron O'Toole or Peter McKay, both of them very smart, savvy, clear political operators who want to succeed, will come up with some kind of a formula that would, they will present to the public, not in some, you know, dodgy way that is all about clandestine approaches to tactically winning seats, but as a true pan-Canadian effort to win seats in all regions of the country. And they'll make a true effort to try to appeal to those communities in those regions of the country where we weren't successful in 2019. You know, a little, by the way, secret that, that I think some people have sort of figured out through the course of history. It was, I remember after the 04 election when Stephen Harper lost, but he stayed on as leader to get another shot in the 0506 campaign. And people said about Paul Martin, because he had his big cities agenda, that Stephen Harper would never win in the MTV, the Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver. He would never have an effective urban agenda. Stephen Harper and Jason Kenney as his lieutenant, we looked at that challenge. And effectively, what we did is we reached out to new Canadians. And so the ethnic outreach and the bridge building that we did and the genuine reconciliation with the conservative movement with new Canadians that had been abandoned for far too long, that actually turned into an urban strategy where we were competitive in the GTA and in Vancouver, and we won in big cities all across the country other than Montreal. So there are ways that the that conservatives with an effective platform, with a true, uh, honest effort, can reach out and reach to new Canadians and new audiences and get them to support the party. I mean, that's an interesting point, James, because, I mean, if we look at the issues that are dominating urban Canada right now, uh, overwhelmingly, it's Black Lives Matter, it's issues of police brutality, and it's questions of systemic and inherent racism. And it seems to me like the Conservative Party has been, on the leadership side, has been really behind the eight ball on these issues. You know, when I talk to especially young Conservatives, I find an overwhelming amount of support for things like redirecting police resources, abolishing police unions, making these sorts of widespread reforms of our police forces in response to what we're seeing both in America and in Canada. And I just sort of am surprised that I'm not seeing any uh, either McKay or O'Toole sort of come out with 
an aggressive plan that could actually gain them a lot of support in the 905 and a lot of the GTA areas. Well, on policing specifically, I mean, they, they frankly, they may well in time, but as you know, like this story is still being written, right? And and the and and so it's, it's kind of hard to say right in the middle of a storm that that's going to be the pathway out. But I, I do think you will certainly see from either Aaron or Peter, should they become leader, aggressive declarations and real efforts at reconciliation with all Canadians and to try to be that, you know, unifying leader and to frankly make the statement that it's not adequate to be not racist. You have to be anti-racist and you have to be aggressively anti-racist and carry that. And because there's clearly a generational cultural shift going on. And the shift that I think we see right now in terms of solidarity with racialized Canadians who feel abandoned by the system is the rapid moving of the needle in this in the United States and in Canada. We've not seen, frankly, since equality for gays and lesbians and same-sex marriage and the way in which that movement had a massive U-turn in Canadian public support. And now it's just sort of baked into our, our understanding of how we should live with one another. So I, I think there's a big window of opportunity. Sandy just listed off a number of, of issues there from, you know, policing issues to the economy, to pipelines, to uh, Indigenous issues, to climate change. You know, Justin Trudeau has had two governments in a row now, effectively two majorities, because the, the NDP are not going to go anywhere. He's, he will effectively, after this run, have had two majorities in a row. And, and I don't think anybody can reasonably say that on the economy, or on Indigenous issues, or on pipelines, uh, or on pandemic preparedness, or on any of these issues, that Canada is objectively better off than we were before Justin Trudeau became Prime Minister. We might feel a little bit better about ourselves, and he might you know, speak to an interesting audience, but I don't think Canada is objectively better off in any of those areas. Well, let's just remember that Stephen Harper ran the 2015 election on kneecaps. So that carried a very, very strong message, I think, to uh, voters of color. And and I think there was an, an impact for it, an awful lot of the work that w- had been done to attract uh, voters of color, I think, was undone by a pretty targeted election. And and my I guess my question, James, is, you know, how much of the success of the Harper election, really, when you look back on it, was less about wise strategic planning and more about an opportunistic uh, or a, uh, the opportunity afforded by the collapse of the Liberal Party and the rise of Jack Layton and the, the NDP and what happened with the bloc. Do not conservative fortunes depend to a great deal about on what's happening with the other parties. Well, I think it's both actually, and I and I think it would be it would be unfair to dismiss Stephen Harper and and his political success. Like this is a guy who, when he ran for the Canadian Alliance leadership, the Canadian Alliance was literally at six percent in the polls nationally. I remember sitting in Parliament and being mocked by about that by Don Boudreau and Jean Chrétien. So we were at six percent in the polls nationally. He came back, held on to the the Canadian Alliance brought it together, ran, added seats, got 100 seats in 04, 124 in 06, 143 or 146 in 08, and then won a majority in 2011. The truth is he earned it. He ran in two national leadership races in every campaign. He got more and more seats. And the Liberals collapsed and the NDP had a wave election. Well, the thing is, you say, well, the Liberals collapse. Well, no, voters chose Stephen Harper over the Liberal Party. They didn't. They didn't collapse because of their own because they just were stumbling upon themselves. Uh, they, they collapsed because Stephen Harper was a better option. They didn't. Just a happen. lot of, the, but a lot of those voters went to the NDP. It was the Jack Layton wave that really yeah. created the opening, was it not? 
Well, which is why I said it's a combination of the two. I don't think Canadians, Canadians are a very cautious, you know, populace, right? We don't trust people with a majority government, you know, just because we're not satisfied with Michael Ignatieff's campaign. No, you, you have to earn a majority government in this country. You really do. And it's hard to win a majority because of the diversity of this country, the regional economic pressures, the regional issues that exist, the, the continental campaign that you have to, to win a majority is really, really tough. And Stephen Harper managed to do that, and he won it after having run twice before and been rejected. So he he earned the endorsement of Canadians vote by vote and so on. Now, yes, of course, Jack Layton ran an inspired campaign, and Michael Ignatieff, the opposite. So uh, that helps. So you need the two together, but you don't become prime minister without earning it. So if we look at, at Aaron O'Toole and Peter McKay and the current environment, I, you know, again, I look to uh, to the Greater Toronto Area, to the 905, which seems to be such an important linchpin, and Quebec, of course, as well. And the 905 is majority uh, visible minorities and almost 50% immigrant population. More than that, when you count second generation. And we've got Aaron O'Toole presenting a message of take back Canada and law and order and, and targeting on policing and, and, and criminal justice. And Peter McKay, it's hard to see where he is. Where is the message that is going to open up that population to a conservative message? Well, I mean, look, there's going to be a lot of time between the end of this leadership campaign and a general election campaign, I'm guessing. I don't imagine there's going to be an election campaign this fall, just logistically. I don't think it's possible. And frankly, you need all three opposition parties to have it happen. And the NDP are a mess. And the the Bloc Québécois, most of those MPs have the best jobs they'll ever have, and they're not going to let them go. So it is what it is. So, So there is time to certainly recalibrate and come forward with a platform, a sincere platform with sincere policies that resonate with a broad cross-section of Canadians. And, and I have no doubt that Aaron and Peter can certainly do that and bring in the kind of people who would, would genuinely speak to a platform that would be engaging to those to those communities. And I know that they aspire to do that, and, and I know that they'll put in the effort in order to try to make that happen. James, it's interesting to me that you assume that there's still a couple of years for the Conservatives to do that. Yet, of course, we're hearing rumors of a snap election. And if you look at sort of the dynamics at play, you know, we have a sort of ineffectual NDP, and we have a, a CPC that's still in a state of sort of chaos because of the leadership. And of course, we have Justin Trudeau riding high in the polls, thanks to COVID. And we have a sort of a liberal apparatus that believe that this pandemic and the subsequent economic damage sort of gives them the license to sort of recreate um, the Canadian economy from ground up. You know, they're going to create their year yeah. zero here. I mean, isn't this all ripe for a snap election? If you were the Liberals, wouldn't you think that this would be the moment to to call that election and make that play for the for the majority? Possibly, but you know, political lore is is, and you know, there's there's mm-hmm. there's a big uh, debris field of politicians who thought they could capitalize on a poll that looked really good right now. Um, you know, but and this is why I think you know, to Sandy's earlier point, you know, about the broad issues that are in front of us right now, you know. If, if the issue that is dominating Canadians' mindset is collective health, collective well-being, COVID, a second wave of COVID, my God, we need to all come together. We need to continue to extend CERB. I know the Prime Minister just announced he's extending CERB again. And we all need to come together and socialize. And my God, the health system. That's, I think, broadly to the advantage of the Liberals. However... If there is no massive second wave and there isn't going to be a second quarantine and there isn't going to be a lockdown and people's anxieties shift from the medical side of this to the economic side of this, then that really is, I think, the opportunity for conservatives to come forward and just speak to that audience. Because I, I do think that the public, broadly speaking, 
has baked in assumptions about which political party is better to address which suite of issues. If the issues are climate change and healthcare, then you would tack to the center left party. If the issues are national security, the economy, public safety, you instinctively think that a center right party is probably more suited to do that. And I don't think that that paradigm is going to be shifted because of a cute leadership campaign platform or a, a specific sales pitch. I just think those assumptions about the center left party and the center right party being best equipped to deal with those suite of issues is just baked into who we are and how we assess our political options in front of us. So therefore, in politics, the challenge is to not talk about boutique issues that are contemporary, which Andrew Scheer failed and tried. It's actually to get the paradigm to be the focus, not the specific issues. So if the paradigm shift goes from COVID and public health and, and lockdowns over to we need to boost and restart this economy, that's where the votes are. And that's where people will, I think, instinctively give conservatives the first opportunity to present a credible plan. That's why Donald Trump is doing what he's doing in the United States, whether it'll work or not. But but there's a baked in assumption there in my view. But there's a baked in assumption, but that doesn't necessarily win you an election. And everything that we're seeing yeah. coming out of the, the conservative party or have been prior to COVID when I stopped paying attention was, you know, <laughs> people was basically it, it, the whole thing started to was, was starting to feel a little civil worry with with, you know, people at the higher ends of the party getting um, ousted. You had, uh, you know, at this point, I think Andrew Shear is the lamest of mm -hmm. the lame ducks. I think that he's been completely neutered. I'm not hearing from the party regularly. I'm not seeing from them regularly. I don't know where they stand on any of these issues that are just becoming absolutely massive issues in, in the public sphere. They're kind of absent. They're AWOL right now. So I don't know how you go from that to um, a party that's in fighting form if a snap election gets called either in the fall or in the early spring. I guess the point I was making is that an, an opportunity, if that shift happens from COVID to the economic rebound, then I think I think a door is open. Party still has to walk through it, is my point. To your second point, though, I think you're right. And, and I think sort of one of the untold stories of people within the party who are mindful of this, who's like I still talk to a lot of my former colleagues. And I think the Conservative Party does have a lot of internal anxieties and a lot of stresses and a lot of division that does need to be fixed back up. When you know, Andrew Scheer's leadership clearly has not been successful on a number of fronts. You know, he won the leadership with 50.1% of the, of the vote. And, you know, the Kelly Leach wing of the party, such as it is, the Maxime Bernier wing of the party, Brad Trost, and he had a, you know, a pitched battle that saw Trost lose his nomination. I mean, this, it's a, it's a party that has had real clear divisions and problems on the ground, which is why some of the language that you see that Sandy talked about in both Aaron and Peter's uh, campaign manifestos, a lot of that is sort of internal dialogue within the conservative movement to make sure that everybody stays united under a big tent, broadly appealing political party. And and do you close some doors with some voters as a consequence of that? Yeah, I suppose. But in the fullness of time, you know, a truly national conservative party that isn't fragmented and scrapping with each other is the first step towards rebuilding and presenting yourself to a broader pan-Canadian audience. Given the unbelievably overwhelming impact and shadow of Donald Trump in the United States, which is just blaring across all of our screens every day, and I, I see it being reflected and echoed in certain quarters within the conservative movement. You know, we saw the Maxime Bernier, we saw uh, the Kelly Leach. How much do you think that this is impacting thought and energy within the Conservative Party? And how much is that a challenge for a party that has to reach across and be more than a regional party and govern nationally? Yeah, I would be lying to say that his presence doesn't loom large, but Donald Trump's presence looms large, I think, in all conservative parties in all parts of the world mm -hmm. in differing ways, right? And you see Boris Johnson, you know, breaking away from Donald Trump and, and not aligning himself at all with him. I mean, 
you know, you see in Canada, and I and I you mentioned the last leadership campaign, as a conservative who does not like or support or believe in anything that Donald Trump is it, it represents, I, I genuinely like the fact that in the previous leadership campaign where we had, you know, 15, 16 people running for leader in this campaign, we have four official candidates, but we were up to eight at one point of people who are testing the waters, that not one of those people, over 20 people who have put their name forward have said, I like what Donald Trump is doing, and I think we need to emulate that in Canada. Not one person has said that. You know, Kelly Leach dipped her toe in the water, Maxine Bernier a little bit, but Max didn't do that as a conservative. Most of that dark stuff he did from the outside. And I think that's a testament to the fact that conservatives understand that Canadians do not want that in Canada. However, there is a percentage of Canadians, 5%, 10%, 15%, who do align with Donald Trump, broadly speaking, or they they like the people that he happens to offend, whether it's the media or Hollywood or the intelligentsia. And so they they kind of want a taste of that and they want to play in those in, in those waters. Well, I, I think you know, the conservative movement needs to be very careful about that, obviously, because it's in my view, it's very defeating in, in the long term. So I think in some ways in which that cohort of Canadians who see themselves as Donald Trump sort of supporters, and again, it's a very small number of Canadians, I think the way in which the Conservative Party will align to ensure that they stay within the Conservative tent and be animated is to focus on China. Because there is a credible issue on which Donald Trump, I think by accident or by demagoguery or whatever, Donald Trump probably is on the right side of history, right? It, It has long been overdue that China be confronted on their disastrous approach to trade, uh, intellectual property theft, human rights, their abandonment of their WTO commitments. So I I think that's what you'll see because Donald Trump is not going to run against Joe Biden. Donald Trump is going to run against China. And uh, and I think there will be some spillover into the dialogue that we see in Canadian politics broadly. James, thank you so much for you've been very generous with your time with us. Uh, Really appreciate these these thoughtful observations. Thank you for your time today. Pleasure is mine. Happy to come on anytime. Sandy, what did you what did you think about James there? Well, I, I think that uh, he was being diplomatic. I think that the challenge is still much, much harder for both of the main leadership candidates. I think both Aaron O'Toole and Peter McKay are right now still trying to play to their base, how they are going to pivot and be able to attract, to really carve out an identity that's going to appeal to Ontario and Quebec is still an unanswered question. I still see the Conservatives as governing largely from a prairie base, and thats I don't think that's going to do it. What are your thoughts? I thought Moore would be a much more fun leader. I think I'd be paying much more attention if you were in this race, to be honest with James you. James Moore and Rana Ambrose would both, I think... Um, would um, that not have been fun? That would have been fun. None of the above doesn't seem to be the option, though. Mailbag! Mailbag! And now it's time to open up the mailbag. Last week we asked listeners to send in questions. Today's question comes from Cinematological on Twitter. My question for next time is, how soon after Jen Gerson moves to the mountains does she publish her manifesto? Not gonna lie. (laughs) Have considered moving closer to the mountains in a place where I could get some property and grow my own vegetables. The question isn't when I write the manifesto. The question will be, what will be in the manifesto? (laughs) That's the real question. And that is, I think, what I am in the process of working out right now. Is it going to be about food security, Jen? 
I mean, it may be about food security. I mean, you know that I've been trying to like have an episode devoted to food security for some time right now, and everybody keeps on trying to like get me off this train, probably because it makes me sound like a fucking nutter. So that's fine. And also, it looks like food security's been fine. I actually threw away my sourdough starter today because I'm like, I don't actually need this. I, I've got I've got yeast again. Like you know, like you know, things are returning to normal when you throw away your sourdough starter, right? We should have a cooking um, show, Jen. We should got we should do the home Jen's home canning show. Okay, I would just like to point out that if there were a Great Canadian Bake Off for journalists, I would fucking kill it. I would kill <laughs> all of you people, and I would eat you. It'd be great. It'd be great. Anyway, so like, look, it's it's not totally wrong to flag me as one of these people who is going to retreat from the city. Okay, that that wouldn't. I you would put me on a list of people that that you would expect that for. Yeah. Okay. If you have a question you want us to answer on the show, you can tweet at us at Oppocast or send us an email to oppo at canadalandshow.com. That's it for Oppo this week. We'll be back in two weeks. Once again, the ways to get in touch are at oppo at canadalandshow.com or on Twitter at Oppocast. This episode was produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Theme music by Nathan Burley. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.